I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah of Newton, Massachusetts, and this is TBA Now, a podcast featuring issues and concerns that affect our temple community and the people who make it an interesting, dynamic place to be. Everyone has stories to tell. This is the place to hear them. We all have stories about our frustrations and concerns and bad encounters with the American healthcare system. How will it ever improve and become more accessible? We'll explore these questions and more with our guest, Dana Gelb Safran. Dana Gelb Safran, it is so wonderful to have you on our podcast, TBA Now. You know, I was thinking about the hour having joined and that, if I'm not mistaken, we joined Temple Beth Avodah the same year that you did, Rabbi. That came in 1997. Yeah. Molly and Zoe and our daughter, Allie, were in kindergarten together. And kindergarten was the year we said, it's time to find a temple so that Allie can go to Sunday school. Amazing. That's a long time to be members of the temple. It is a long time. It has gone very fast. But when I scan my memory, boy, it's a very rich tapestry of memories that I and our family have connected with the temple and with you, Rabbi. Well, it has been quite a wonderful ride. Dana, I think about you as being a person that has uh, always had some significant Jewish Uh, involvement in her life. Does that go back to when you were a kid? It does. I grew up in a Reformed Jewish household. My parents had grown up fairly secular. And because of my brother, Bruce, and I, our family started to become more observant. The two of us decided to become kosher when we were young teens. And because he was older than I, uh, had gotten very into Jewish temple youth uh, group and nifty and brought that music home for all of us to uh, love and celebrate. And for me, that was a turning point. It really just brought a sense of spirituality that had been, frankly, missing for me in the way that Judaism worked. I found it interesting. I loved the sense of belonging, but there wasn't a deep spirituality until there was that, um, that Jewish music. And what has that connection to Jewish spirituality, how has that shaped who you are and what you do? Hmm. Uh, well, in, in my growing up years, it shaped my wanting to go to Israel for a summer program. Uh, I came home saying I was going to live in Israel after I graduated college. And my parents, particularly my mother, who was born there, were quite terrified because I was always a person of conviction, and I think she believed that was really going to happen. Maybe didn't realize that probably every young Jewish person comes back saying that. But you um, really mean it. <laughs> um, and uh, going to um, Kutz camp for Jewish leadership and, and just a wonderful spiritual experience there. My own temple youth group was very, very important to my um, teenage years and, and my just sense of, of who I was. Then through my life, it has just grounded my, my sense of belonging. I certainly have not grown to be more observant as a a Jewish adult, but I am always deeply curious and connected 
about Judaism for years coming to your Torah study class and just always, always wanting to continue learning and understanding what it means to be Jewish and, and to keep deepening my own sense of that. And do you have any sense of the spiritual background that you built over the years and the sense of ethical conviction that you do have that is really prominent in your character? Does that come out of that as well as, as you think about it? Interesting. I think it it may. I also really trace that to uh, to my parents and to my upbringing. And, and I think there was always a, a deep um, sense of the value of tikkun olam without knowing those words in my childhood or in my family of origin. There was absolutely a, a value placed on what are you going to do that will make this world better uh, because you've been in it and contributed to it than it was when you found it. And of course, you uh, learned that uh, in your undergraduate years at Wesleyan University, which is a fine uh, institution. <laughs> yes, we share that. Um, honestly, it's one of the things that drew me to Wesleyan. You know, I'd say there were there were really two things, three things that drew me to Wesleyan. One, and it's hard to say which was first and which was second in ranking, but I was not only a very good student, but I was deeply committed to the arts and, and ballet in particular. And there weren't very many universities to choose from that had really strong academics and really strong arts. And so that was really important. But then, you know, as you point out, just the the culture of Wesleyan and the sort of deep commitment to social justice and and to uh, making the world better was compelling to me. I, I literally stepped on the campus and knew that there was nowhere else I wanted to go. It was very unusual back in those days to apply early decision, but I did apply early decision to to Wesleyan, and luckily they wanted me as much as I wanted them. So that's where I went. So nice when that works. <laughs> Indeed. Dana, you've had a really fascinating career up to this point. Would you walk us through the, tra the trajectory of where you started and what you're doing now? Oh, sure. That's, that's fun to do. First, my formal training and background are in public health. And I would say that um, before I even was conscious of the field of public health, I was sort of creating it in my own way during my years at Wesley, and I double majored in biology and government because I was always really fascinated by that intersection of science and policy and decision making. And after college, my first job was really formative. I, I worked in a now defunct agency of the Congress called the Office of Technology Assessment, and it was a fantastic place that would do deep uh, two-year studies and reports on policy issues. So there I, I got my first experience really working on shaping scientific information because I was working on issues around reproductive health hazards in the workplace and then later on um, Alzheimer's and other dementias. So taking scientific information and shaping it for policymakers, because these reports were really meant to be for Congress. And I fell in love with uh, that experience of, of science and, and decision making really coming together in the ways that I kind of had imagined, but hadn't really experienced, and made the decision to go get uh, what turned out to be the first of two degrees in public health. So I went to Harvard to get my master's, 
Then Alan and I got married right as I was graduating from that program, and we moved to New York City. And I worked doing primary research at an organization called the United Hospital Fund. And through that experience, realized I don't just love being at that intersection of science and decision making. I love actually doing the science. Up to that point, I had been kind of synthesizing other science that others had done. And so I knew all right, I need to go back to school now and get a doctorate because I I will want to lead studies, not just work on them. Uh, So I I went back to Harvard and got that second degree, a doctor of science in public health. So now have been in, in healthcare for over 30 years. The first half of that was in academia, kind of doing the work of quality measure development um, back in a day when quality measures were just an academic exercise. And when Did all of that, that, yeah. So in about 2000, an institution called the Institute of Medicine, now, now called the National Academy of Medicine, released a couple of really world-changing ch- uh, studies, at least for the U.S. The first of those was called To Air is Human. And What that report showed was that medical errors were the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S. And that really shook shook everyone up because it, it told us, wait a minute, we say that we have the best healthcare system in the world. How can this be true? And shortly on the- I remember just just to to mention that Mm -hmm. when that information hit, it was, it was as if some scandalous truth had been revealed. And along with that, the other feeling, which was as if someone had parted curtains that had been kept carefully closed mm. to reveal something that was really frightening. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so suddenly there was this interest, policymaker interest, and and I think public interest in, well, how, how would we measure and improve the safety of healthcare? And that, of course, is, is a direct link to the importance of measuring quality, because safety is one of the important dimensions of, of quality, only one of many. And then, uh, you know, just a, a second report that was also seminal was uh, the Institute of Medicine report called Crossing the Quality Chasm, which really said that there are six pillars of a high-performing healthcare system, and we are, you know, a chasm away from high performance on any of those six. Safety was only one of the six. Uh, patient-centeredness was another. Mm-hmm. And of course, patient-centeredness had really been the, the, the centerpiece of the work I was doing. I was particularly focused on measuring the quality of doctor-patient relationships and uh, whether patients had trust in their doctors, the quality of communication, and then studying how much do those attributes matter for shaping outcomes, for getting good good health outcomes for patients and good business outcomes for provider organizations. So my, my world just changed because suddenly the work I had been doing kind of behind the academic curtain was now important in the world. Pretty soon after that, I was invited to take a role um, on the executive team at Blue Cross Massachusetts, and that was uh, at the end of 2006, I I took that leap. I want to know when you think everything changed when it comes to our consciousness now about the healthcare system, as it relates perhaps to the work you did. In other words, you do these reports that 
reveal stunning, I mean, really stunning truths about the healthcare system in America. And it's as if the country suddenly begins to awaken to just how complicated and inequitable the system is. Is there any, is there a particular moment that happens? Is it an administration that comes in? How does that happen? Hmm. You know, I think that policymakers, since the the genesis of insurance, and, and we have to remember that insurance in the U.S. healthcare system is in many ways still a relatively new phenomenon. You know, 1965 was when the Medicare program came into being, and there wasn't really commercial insurance to speak of before that. And so every administration, I'd say, since that time has been grappling with the challenges of healthcare and its complexities and its inadequacies. But I think really it was around 2000 with these reports that I mentioned that there started to be a greater consciousness beyond policymakers to the public about healthcare. And I don't even mean the inequities piece. I think that piece now has started to come center stage, particularly, you know, following 2010 uh, with the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, now, you know, the, the term social determinants of health, it's fun for me to kind of hear that as a general term that people are using. You see it in the in the news. That was such a kind of rarefied academic concept back in the 1990s and early 2000s when my colleagues and I were working on it. I think those reports that we talked about in, in early 2000 and the shock of, of to air as human and understanding that the volume of death that we're talking about, this was one of the images in that report was, and this was before 9-11, they probably would have chosen a different image otherwise, is if a jumbo jet liner filled with people was crashing every day of the year, killing everyone on board. That's the volume we're talking about when we say the sixth leading cause of death being medical errors. That shocked people. Yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. So Dana, when, when that information goes public and we read it distilled uh, in the media, my guess is hospital administrators and doctors are reading it uh, the, the whole report. And how did the hospital establishment, for want of a better term, respond to the report? I think that it was taken very seriously. You know, you, you spoke earlier about, you know, the idea of a, a curtain being drawn back. But I, I think in a lot of ways, it was unknown in its magnitude, even to the provider systems themselves, because the data hadn't been aggregated. And and it wasn't being looked at as a population phenomenon. And so I think that hospitals really did begin to take it very seriously. And in fact, speaking of the airline industry, one of the one of the models that began to be looked at in terms of improving safety was the airline industry because the airline industry had successfully made a transition in culture from a strictly hierarchical one, really drawn from kind of military roots, to one where the culture had shifted to say, it is everyone's responsibility to speak up 
if they see that there's something wrong. So if you're a flight attendant and you think that something is off with respect to this flight or something with respect to safety, you have every much a, a right and responsibility to speak up as the person who's sitting in the in the pilot seat. And of course, that was you know a dramatic shift in culture. And healthcare really looked to that as an example and embraced it as an example. I, I can't say we've been successful, but a lot of work was done to try to remove the hierarchy in healthcare teams, especially surgical teams, right? And a, a great deal being done to create an environment within the surgical team of really, we are a team. This is not a hierarchy and everyone really needs to play a role in making sure that we have a, a safe and, and positive outcome for, for the patient that, that is ours today. Is one of the things that happens is that the doctors become more accountable because of this information? I would say so. But also part of what happens is that we start to become aware that this notion that we have, that we are the best healthcare system in the world, now is, is shaken, right? And we juxtapose that against the fact that we are, as a fact, the nation that spends the most of any in the world and that has the highest rate of growth on that spending. So we're not only spending more than every other nation on the planet, but our rate of rise on that spend is two or threefold other. So it's a much steeper curve. And yet <laughs> we, we start to understand that not only through failings of the healthcare system, but also through you know some of our other social policy vulnerabilities, we actually have health that's in the bottom third, and sometimes worse than that, of all developed nations. How does that happen? I know that your life has been dedicated to that question, at least reasonably, mm. I assume. Mm. But just as a consumer, having myself been... Uh, in an operating room on a table almost a year ago. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder about that when I think about how I was treated, um, which was, by the way, extraordinarily well. Mm-hmm. But I, I then I read other stories about what's happening. What, what has gone wrong here? Well, I think a, a large part of of this paradox of spending more and getting less, if we want to put it that way, is that we have a system that pays by the piece and that does not have any budget constraint. So many other countries also have what's called a fee-for-service payment system, but almost all those countries also have national health insurance, and so there is a budget constraint. The U.S. has fee-for-service Healthcare, and I'll explain what that means and why why it leads to this, um, you know, just unconstrained growth that we've been talking about. And that is, we we literally pay for every service that gets delivered, and we pay more for services that are more complex, right? So obviously and appropriately, your heart surgery was paid more than an office visit <laughs> for minor ailments. That makes sense. But what it drives toward when you don't have a budget constraint is just more and more and more services. And so, you know, one of, I'd say the the really um, important parts of, of my own experience as a, a professional in this 
space was my time at Blue Cross, where I had the privilege of working on payment reform. And it was shortly after I arrived at Blue Cross, uh, it was February of 2007, our then CEO said, you know, I want on my desk by June and in the market by September, a new way of paying for healthcare. And I want it to do two things. I want it to improve quality and outcomes, but at the same time, reduce the rate of growth in healthcare spending. So that's kind of the holy grail, right? Um, yeah, or whatever sorry. the Jewish equivalent of that is. <laughs> um, and we had you know, just a few weeks to figure out what is this. But what we came up with actually was pretty great and catalyzed payment reform in the US. So I'll say a few words about what it did, but it, it goes right back to your question about accountability. What this model did was to say, we're going to change the way we pay for care so that it's not just each individual piece, but it's you have a population that is yours that you take care of. And for that population, you have a budget and you're accountable to deliver everything that population needs within that budget, also accountable for ensuring that there is good quality and good health outcomes for that population. So that was brand new. You know, before that, there had been little bits of efforts to do what was called pay for performance. And that was kind of laying in a little component of paying for better quality. And it wasn't generally producing anything in the way of results. But what we did was really quite different from that because it was both a budget constraint on caring for a population and a broad set of quality and outcome measures where there was significant earning opportunity for delivering better quality and better outcomes. And I won't get into the weedy details, but those were structured in a way that you know I feel really very proud of and really came out of my understanding of behavioral economics and how we could set up the incentives in a way that there was motivation to just keep improving and not you only you only get a bonus if you hit one particular score and so it's very demotivating because you either make it or you miss it and and then you know you get nothing so i think the the model which was studied by a brilliant team at harvard medical school led by an economist dr michael chernu was studying what we were doing while we were doing it and so even within the first year uh, there were papers in new england journal of medicine and health affairs saying hey, this model is actually doing those two things. It is improving quality and health outcomes while reducing spending growth. And that got not just attention in Massachusetts, but national attention and really kicked off this move for what's called value-based payment um, and a move away from fee-for-service payment in the Medicare program, which is you know the biggest payer in the US and in other private payers as well. Up until this model, even when there were pay-for-performance models in place, they were never asking provider systems to be accountable for health outcomes. They were asking, if anything, to be accountable for what happens when the patient is in your four walls. But it was seen as kind of a bridge too far. You know, once the patient is out living their life again, you know, how can it possibly be something I can be held accountable for. But we said, if healthcare isn't about producing health, mm. then for heaven's sakes, why are, we, why are we paying close to a fifth of GDP 
on healthcare. And so we did create accountability, not just for what happens in the four walls, but what happens outside. That was transformational because now, and that is honestly, I think, how some of the social determinants of health awareness is creeping in because suddenly you're asking doctors and hospitals to think about the patient outside your four walls, to think about what are the things in their life circumstances that could get in the way of having a good result here and to work on those things. So it means different staffing models. You know, we saw provider systems hiring very different kinds of staff, bringing social workers onto their team, having to integrate behavioral health or mental health into primary care, not treat, you know, the mind as if it's completely separate from the body and hiring pharmacists and, you know, really having a multidisciplinary team and working with patients engaging patients in between visits so that the boundaries of the office visits started to kind of melt away a little bit as the place where healthcare happens. So that really, you're describing an extraordinary evolution of our understanding of healthcare delivery, the way we as consumers experience it, and also on a deep institutional level, that the very direction and founding purposes of healthcare systems of hospitals is really changing in, in an ironic sort of way, getting closer to the people that they're serving. Absolutely. That's exactly right. This is um, really what a fascinating career that you've had. And you've been involved with Blue Cross and done really extraordinary work, as you described at the outset of our conversation uh, between science and policy and uh, making stuff happen as you have. I'm curious, um, where have you gone next? So I uh, took a job with a company called Well Health, and it's a company based in California. But don't worry, we're, we're staying here in Newton, even after COVID. And Well is a healthcare communications technology company. I know that's a mouthful, but our, our founder, who is one of these, you know, brilliant 31-year-old CEOs who started a company in his mid-20s and just had a, a brilliant vision and, and also a passion because he himself was a high-performance athlete who unfortunately um, had a, a very significant brush with the healthcare system in his 20s and up close and personal saw how disjointed and um, terrible the experiences for patients, even with doctors and hospitals that you think are magnificent, which he did. And so he his spot on the wall was to make healthcare the industry that is the highest rated by consumers. And in case you don't know, right now we sit down right around the same level as cable companies. Right in <laughs> um, Congress, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so it's quite an aspiration. Um, but the way that we're going about doing that is really by using technology to make the communication between doctors and their patients, hospitals and their patients, as easy and as frictionless as patients, as people's communication with their friends, their family, their coworkers, and many other businesses that are using digital um, communications. Dan, how does WellHealth uh, intend to do that? Yeah, so, you know, communication, of course, is, is uh, multi-channel. So is our work multi-channel. So, 
the prevailing way that our current customer base is communicating with patients, and there are 31 million patients on this platform today, um, is by text. Um, so imagine being able to have two-way conversational text with your doctor's office, right? So that if you have a question or concern, let's say, you know, you think you might have been exposed to COVID and you want to know how can you get tested or what symptoms should we look at, look out for, you can text that question in. But as importantly, if your doctor's office wants to get a message out to you in a way that seems highly personalized, but is really very automated and relieves staff time from, you know, calling patient after patient on the phone, they can send out a text that comes across, you know, with your name, with specific dates or other information specific to you, but, you know, relieve staff time and then you can respond back to that. So for example, Dana, we noticed that your prescription for, you know, XYZ medicine expired in July. Can we help you arrange a refill? And mm-hmm. I text back, yes. And you say, great, is such and such pharmacy, you know, on Washington Street in Newtonville, the right place to send that? And I say, no. And they say, okay, then where? Sh-? And all of that is automated. So lots is being done over text, but also the other channels are um, what's called IVR, uh, interactive voice response. So it's a phone call or uh, email or web chat. You know, we all love those those little chat bots on websites where you can mm-hmm. just uh, start a conversation and somebody comes online and helps you. So it's all those channels. You're, you're describing in some way what a concierge doctor gives to a patient that wants to buy into that private kind of attention system. And what you're suggesting is using technology we can give people that sense of immediate contact and intimacy, even if it's uh, with various bots. At least we know that somewhere, someone is listening and is going to be helping us feel better. Exactly right. It's I think you you nailed it with you know a concierge experience, and importantly, you know there is an off ramp if a patient says something that doesn't fit or that needs actual attention from somebody in the practice, there is an off-ramp that flags that to the attention of the front office staff, the clinical staff, mm-hmm. so that immediately that patient is, is getting attended to. We're really excited about where this is going to take you and take us. Yeah, I am too. And, and honestly, you know, part of what excites me is just back to what I shared about my, my Blue Cross days it really is an enabler of success for providers and health plans who want to change the way they pay for care. Because in order to do that successfully, you have to reach beyond the four walls of the healthcare setting. And well, really just is the solution that enables that. Wow. And what is your role within this new uh, startup? So I'm there to do Three things. My title, you know, is is um, about value based care and population health because those are are the things I'm so passionate about. And what I'll help the company do the three things is number one to establish ourselves with health plans. So up until now, the first five and a half years, the company has marketed and and had a customer base strictly provider systems, and that's been fantastic. But we all know that our health plans also are really challenged with communicating with their members. And, you know, it's been over a decade that health plans, all of them, have had 
consumer engagement as number one or two on their uh, strategic plan, and it's not really working. So uh, helping to establish this company with health plans, then within provider systems, helping to establish the company working with providers who've taken the kind of contracts, the value-based payment contracts that I was describing, and that now really are are pretty widespread in the market. And then third, using my my measurement background to establish a robust measurement and data science function so that we're systematically evaluating the results that our customers are getting and using that to keep improving the product. Dana, really, what a how they're very lucky to find someone they can put all of that together and do what you're doing. Um, what are the pieces that have failed out and what are the pieces you're most hopeful about? Is there, is there room here to be hopeful about this behemoth of an industry turning into something as you're suggesting, as you're hoping, or at least in the work that you're doing, might bring about real and true change? Is this possible? Are you hopeful? I am hopeful. Um, I guess that's my nature, and I, I have to be hopeful. I think there's good reason for hope, but I, I think we can't, we're certainly nowhere close to out of the woods. So the, the part where we've, you know, to use your phrase, failed out is not only do we have a prevailing payment model uh, that I talked about earlier that really is broken, it, it has nothing to do with producing health. It has everything to do with just producing services. In addition to that very broken way of paying for healthcare, it's grown so big, the medical industrial complex, as, as it's often referred to, that it represents nearly a fifth of our economy. And so reforming it has to be done so, so carefully, because even as it is a constraint on the growth of so many industries and a constraint on the earnings of employees in, in every industry, it is the job for about a fifth of our population. And so how do we go about reforming it in a way that doesn't create catastrophe and, and before catastrophe, just huge backlash, right? Because we we have seen that when you you go to make momentous change in healthcare, you sometimes get huge political backlash yes. that basically undercuts all of that. And so it will not be easy, but I am optimistic because we have seen bipartisan commitment to changing the way we pay. And that didn't erode uh, over the 2016 to 2020 period. It did slow a bit. The progress toward changing payment did slow a bit, but the commitment to its importance did not erode. And so I think we will see that re-energized under this administration. And I think we've learned quite a lot about what it takes to be successful so we can make further progress. And one of the the things that that we've also seen is that by committing to care that isn't just constrained within the four walls of of the healthcare setting as we were talking about once you you know say the cost of of care and the outcomes of care are your responsibility regardless of where the patient happens to be at the moment once you make that that shift 
you do start to have to grapple with those social determinants of health. And systemic racism is right there as one of the things you have to grapple with because you have to figure out how are you going to achieve good outcomes for your patients, each individual human being, regardless of their life circumstances. And that that takes engaging in a very different way. Um, and I think COVID has, in a sense, helped us because it accelerated in a way that nothing else was seeming to, to be able to do, our adoption and, and embrace of virtual care, of the fact that healthcare doesn't, in fact, have to only happen within the four walls of a healthcare system. Yes. Uh, so I, I, I think there's good cause for optimism. So, Dana, I, I'd like to wrap up with, uh, we, <laughs> we could, I have about a hundred questions still on my list, but I, I think probably I want to, uh, um, rein myself in, but I, I do want to ask this. We've mentioned COVID now a, a few times and, uh, from a policy perspective now, and perhaps as it relates to the work you're doing right now, how do things change in the healthcare industry post-pandemic? I think the biggest change is this embrace of virtual care. And I don't just mean video visits, though I mean that too. But I think that this notion that we need to be able to look after and take care of and support patients regardless of where they are in time and space is something that really has now taken center stage. And some of the technologies that are being developed to enable that are really nothing short of thrilling. I was reading over the weekend about some of the work that Google is doing so that with your phone, your heart rate and your respiratory function will be able to be monitored using your camera, interestingly, using mm -hmm. what happens to your uh, skin color as that is reflected. I don't, I don't fully understand how the technology will work, but it, it wasn't, you know, about taking your, your pulse on the pad or somehow. Yeah, that's but, easy stuff. But yeah, that's easy. <laughs> but with the, the camera. So it's just fascinating stuff. And we're, we're going to more and more be able to take care of patients who have serious chronic illnesses from a distance. That will give people, I think, a sense of security to know that they're not just out there on their own having to figure out, are these symptoms something I have to worry about? But actually, if, if those symptoms are maybe being transmitted continuously or at least uh, can be transmitted if you want them to be without your having to get in a car or an ambulance and go get seen. That's pretty interesting, exciting uh, stuff. That's earth shattering, really, if you think about the impact it can have on our nation and uh, for all of the aches and pains, uh, large and small, that people want to care for but aren't quite sure what to do. It, it really is a game changer. It is. And, and then the other thing I'll just say is that the awakening around systemic racism and that the healthcare system has to grapple with that is very real and should make us all optimistic too. The U.S. has shameful rates of maternal mortality, infant mortality among people of color. And 
a lot of this can be addressed, needs to be addressed. And just last week, the largest religious healthcare systems, Catholic healthcare systems that care for millions of Americans committed themselves and their resources to addressing systemic racism in their healthcare system. Now, it won't be perfect, but just the awakening and the commitment to that, I think, tells us we're, we're in a new chapter. Well, Danny Gelsaffron, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you and to learn about the significant work that you're doing for all of us, really. It means a lot. And thank you for leaving us uh, on this uh, cold winter with something to be hopeful about. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's been a, a pleasure and a privilege. Thanks for listening to TBA Now. We want you to subscribe. Help us grow this bigger and better. Let us know what you think. Any suggestions, any thoughts for who we should talk to? We are all ears. You can access us by the website, bethavodad.org, or find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.